0: Hello everyone, welcome to the Sigalola Salami Show. It's 10am in Melbourne, Australia here. And it seems the virtual cafe is empty. I think Sigalola must be in bed as it's 11pm in London now. Seeing as though there's no one here, I might just read from my book, Ghost Money. Pardon my manners, my name is uh, Andrew Netty, And I'm a Melbourne-based uh, crime writer. So, Ghost Money is my first novel and it's a noir story set in cambodia in the mid-1990s a time when i was working in the country as a journalist for a wire service i'd always been fascinated by cambodia i I first visited the country in 1992 while i was living in neighboring laos Um, it was a desperately poor and traumatized country The Khmer Rouge, responsible for the deaths by starvation and torture of approximately 1.7 million Cambodians during their brief rule in the 70s, were still very much around and fighting from heavily fortified jungle bases. The government was an unstable coalition of two parties who'd been at each other's throats for the better part of a decade and whose main interests were settling historical scores and making money. Phnom Penh, the, f- the crumbling capital of the former French colony, was crawling with foreigners in the early 90s, peacekeepers sent by the West and its allies to invo- enforce the truce between the various political factions and their entourage of dropouts, hustlers, pimps, spies, do-gooders and journalists such as myself. The streets teemed with Cambodian men and women in um, with missing legs and arms, victims of the landmines strewn across the country, There was no no power most of the time, and the possible return of the Khmer Rouge cast a shadow over everything. So when the opportunity arose several years later to fill in for one of the wire services, I jumped at it. And as it turned out, from a journalist's standpoint, my timing was very good. Unknown to most foreign observers, the Khmer Rouge had been splintering internally for many years. Partly this was a result of the government's relentless military operations against them, But I think a more decisive factor, although we didn't know it at the time, were internal tensions over the movement's direction and how best to divide the spoils from the guerrilla's logging and gem mining operations along the border with Thailand. So in August 1996, a couple of weeks before I arrived in Phnom Penh to fill in for the wire service, Eng Suri, the former Deputy Prime Minister in the Khmer Rouge, announced he'd split from the movement and wanted to negotiate with the coalition government for amnesty. He claimed he'd grown sick of the fighting and wanted to end the war. A more significant influence were reports that the Khmer Rouge hardliners under Pol Pot had discovered that Eng Engsari was skimming the proceeds from gem mining and logging operations and were about to move against him. Um, anyway, that's another story, but it's the backdrop of my novel, ghost money. Um, I always wanted. I always thought Cambodia would be a good setting for a crime story, but I I didn't just want to write a simple crime story, I wanted to also capture some of the country's history, the sense of a nation in transition. In the mid-90s, young people in Cambodia, they wanted change, and so they still want it now. The old one, Stability, in between was another group, Children of the Khmer Rouge era and the civil war that followed. Um... And as the country opened up with the arrival of UN peacekeepers, a lot of these people felt quite cut adrift. The main character in my novel is a Vietnamese-Australian ex-cop called Max Quinlan, who is in denial about his Vietnamese background. Um, And in the book, he's given the job to go and find a missing Australian businessman called Charles Avery. And... That's what I'm going to read from now. I'm going to read from the first uh, chapter, the second chapter of the book, which is, describes um, Quinlan's arrival in Cambodia. Um, all right. Quinlan and Cambodia had history. Memories of his father shouting at their black and white television. On the screen, Asian soldiers, terrified faces under steel helmets too large for their heads, running from an invisible enemy. The sky behind them, full of smoke and fire. It was 1975. Max was nine years old. Phnom Penh was about to fall to the Khmer Rouge. His father, Lester Quinlan, had been stationed in neighboring Vietnam as an Australian military advisor in the mid-1960s. Images of the war had been commonplace in the lounge of their North Melbourne house. The images fascinated Quinlan as a child. They became increasingly menacing with his father's growing agitation over the course of the conflict. When Saigon had fallen, Lester Quinlan had yelled at the newsreader like an irate football fan, castigating an umpire for a bad decision. Maxwell Quinlan had been born in the port town of Vung Tau in 1965. Three days later, his Vietnamese mother had been killed by a bomb set off in a local market. Lester had brought the boy home, his last act of bravery before drink and bitterness consumed him. 1985, Quinlan had taken a date to see the movie The Killing Fields. The relationship hadn't lasted, but his memory of the film had. Its depiction of the bloody Khmer Rouge takeover of Cambodia had stayed with him. Later, as a policeman in Melbourne's western suburbs, Quinlan had encountered survivors from that time, now refugees. He had listened to their stories and had seen in their eyes that over a decade on they were still reeling from the nightmare. Nearly 2 million people had died in the first few years of the Khmer Rouge-controlled government. The new rulers had sealed the country's borders, emptied the city at gunpoint and had set about exterminating all those suspected of being an enemy of their revolution. It was a long list. Anyone who'd worked for the previous government, gone to university or spoken another language became a target. Even wearing glasses could lead to death. In the late 70s, the Vietnamese invaded the Khmer Rouge and the Khmer Rouge fled to the jungle where they continued fighting, but by then the world had stopped paying attention. It had stayed that way until the United Nations had arrived in the early 90s. As his flight from Bangkok to Phnom Penh gained altitude, Quinlan opened the copy of the Bangkok post he'd picked up at the boarding gate. The front page was dominated by a story about a group of Khmer Rouge splitting from the remainder of the movement and negotiating with the government for amnesty. The man heading the breakaway group Engsari had been foreign minister during the Khmer Rouge government and former right-hand man to the group's shadowy leader, Pol Pot. According to the paper, he controlled an estimated 3,000 fighters and a large swathe of territory in the northwest of the country around his headquarters at Pelin. The name rang a bell. Quinlan checked Avery's map and his hand luggage. The town near the Thai border was circled in red what the hell was Avery thinking heading to a Khmer Rouge stronghold? Engsari told journalists he tried to escape the Khmer Rouge for years, painting a picture of a dying organisation low on manpower, weapons and morale. He claimed to have had nothing to do with the mass killings, saying he was a patriot, only interested in promoting peace and national reconciliation. Ending bloodshed between Khmer and Khmer, as he put it. A picture of several defecting Khmer Rouge soldiers accompanied the story. Dressed in baggy green uniforms, little peaked caps and red checkered cotton scarves, they cradled AK-47 machine guns and stared sullenly into the camera. Years of hard living and poor diet had made them look squinty and gaunt. One had a scar where his left eye should be, another dangled a shattered hand around the grip of his gun. Quinlan glanced out of the plane's window, It was the end of the wet season and the country below was covered in water, emerald rice paddies dotted with clumps of palms receding as the plane approached the outskirts of Phnom Penh. Gold lit by the setting sun, the landscape looked lush and beautiful. Pochentong Airport was a fraction the size of its Bangkok counterpart. After taxiing a relatively short distance, passengers disembarked and walked the rest of the way across the tarmac to the terminal. Immigration was chaos. Quinlan and the other passengers handed over their passports and a completed entry card at one desk, then waited in a disorderly huddle until immigration officers at another held up a passport and shouted a name. There was no rhyme or reason to the process and little scrutiny. Anyone could walk in. It was dusk when Quinlan exited the terminal. He nodded at the first taxi driver who caught his attention, a tall, hungry-looking man who took his luggage and put it in the boot of an old model Mercedes Benz. Do you know a hotel somewhere in the centre of the city? Quinlan asked the driver. The Cambodian flashed a brilliant smile of mainly gold teeth. Yes, I know. Very clean and cheap, he said. The traffic was the opposite of Bangkok's gridlock. Rigged shores, bicycles, motorbikes, cars, lorries and four-wheel drives, even the occasional bullet cart, hurtled in all directions. Police stood idly by the roadside. After twenty minutes the driver turned off a main boulevard down a side street and stopped outside an ageing building. Large red letters across the entrance in English, Khmer and Chinese spelt Hotel International. A surly man in a white singlet, a long wisp of hair protruding from a mole on his left cheek, sat at the reception desk that shared the ground floor with a grimy cafe. He gave Quinlan a cramped room on the third floor. It had a small window that couldn't be opened and overlooked the back of an adjacent building. None of the furnishing, furniture or fittings matched, and the aircon unit, manufactured in the former East Germany, spluttered and moaned, though it didn't reach the volume of the soundtrack from the porn flick played in the room next door. Quinlan had a couple of hours before meeting the one contact he had in Phnom Penh. He sat on the bed and studied a tourist map he'd picked up at Pochentong Airport. The city was structured around a number of main thoroughfares running north to south. Intersecting these was a network of hundreds of smaller streets. His hotel was a short distance off Monivong Boulevard, which ran through the centre of town. When he felt satisfied he could navigate his way around, Quinlan put down the map and reread the Bangkok Post articles about Cambodia. Then he showered, put on fresh clothes, and left the hotel. Quinlan threaded his way through the traffic on Monivong and plunged into the side streets near the Central Market. Whole blocks were enveloped in shadows. Restaurant lights and neon signs from nightclubs and casinos provided the only illumination. People moved in and out of the darkness or stood silhouetted against the light pouring out of doorways. The air was heavy with wood smoke and rotting garbage. Snatches of conversation and warbling command music came at him, along with voices offering a ride or a woman. Dogs lingered at the shadow, at the edge of the shadows. A well-lit section of street, occupied by a couple of dozen Cambodian men standing next to rickshaws and motorcycles, and children selling garlands of jasmine, signaled the establishment where Quinlan was to meet his contract. Contact. A wide set of stairs, lined with tattered carpet, led lined with tattered carpet led to a large first-story room dominated by a circular bar. The place was crowded. The men were overwhelmingly white and middle-aged, bearded and tattooed. The woman circled the bar, trying to make eye contact, sliding a finger across the stomach or the nape of a neck, while the men played coy, waiting for the night to warm up and for the girls to get a little more desperate. Harold Bloom sat at the bar, nursing a beer. As Quinlan's took a stool next to Bloom, a woman slid up next behind him and started to massage his shoulders, Quinlan waved her away. Settling in for another night of wholesome family entertainment, Harold? Stick around. This place hasn't even begun to fire up, Bloom replied without looking at Quinlan. What brings your sorry ass to Phnom Penh and what do you want with me? They certainly get quite a crowd in here. What does management do? Send a bus out to the airport to pick up the daily visa run and deposit them on the front steps? Check out those two. Quinlan motioned to his left, where two Caucasian men in tight acid-washed jeans and T-shirts were talking to a couple of bar girls, large backpacks at their feet. So keen to get laid, they haven't even checked into a hotel yet, said Quinlan. Who are we to judge the ways of the human heart, replied Bloom. People come to this fair city for all sorts of reasons. Money, drugs, sex, romance, a last chance. Fuck, Phnom Penh is the world capital of last chances. "'Isn't that a contradiction, Harold? "'I mean, you only get one last chance. "'When you've used up your last chance, there's always Cambodia. "'That explains why you're here.' Bloom nodded and took a large swig of beer, still avoiding Quinlan's eyes. "'You still a cop, Max? "'Or couldn't you handle it anymore after what happened in Bangkok?' "'Me? I've left the force,' replied Quinlan. "'Work for myself now. "'That's nice, being your own boss and all that. "'What is it you do, exactly?' Actually, i found there's a bit of money to be made finding people who don't want to be found. Is that so? said Bloom, turning on his bar stool to look at Quinlan for the first time. Quinlan met Bloom's gaze and held it. The old man's eyes were magnified behind large, black-rimmed glasses on the top of a bulbous nose webbed by tiny blue and red veins. In his grey safari suit, a large Buddha amulet amulet around his neck, Thinning sandy hair and a slight paunch on his otherwise skinny frame, Bloom looked straight out of central casting as the Western expatriate male going to seed in Asia. Bloom had been senior manager at a family-owned insurance company in a large regional New South Wales town until he'd defrauded the business of nearly a million dollars. He'd known the system, done it slowly, nothing too flashy or above the amount requiring sign-up from higher-up, Three years of mythical claims paid to people who didn't exist, all going into a bank account controlled by him under a false name. It nearly sank the firm when they discovered it, but by then, Bloom had already fled the country. They'd first met in Bangkok. Quinlan had been trawling for information in some after-hours shithole that wrecked of spilt beer and cigarette smoke when he noticed the old man propping up the bar, Thai girl on his lap, loud voice in defiance of the murmured conversations around him. For Quinlan, new to Thailand and eager for quality intelligence to impress his superiors in Australia, Bloom soon became a useful source of information. But enough about me, Harold. How are things with you? Quinlan leaned forward. Are the Australian authorities still looking for you? You made front page news when the Australian papers found you were living the high life in Thailand. Imagine the commotion if they found out you'd swapped Bangkok for Phnom Penh. They would love a story like that, and so would the cops. There were a lot of embarrassed people on the force when you slipped out of Bangkok. Okay, okay, no need to be a complete prick, said Bloom. I'd buy you a beer, but you don't drink, you glum bastard. So why don't you buy me one and tell me what you want? Quinlan ordered a beer for Bloom and a soda water for himself and adopted a more conciliatory tone as he ran through the case, omitting the part about finding Lee's body. The name Avery doesn't ring any bells, said Bloom, shaking his head. Who's looking for him? A sister in Melbourne. Think hard, Harold. You haven't heard anything about him round the traps? Rumours? Innuendo? Anything at all? No. Nah. Can't help you, I'm afraid. Then what can you tell me about the gem trade in Thailand? I can tell you it used to be a big deal until they ran out of stones in the 80s. Now the Thais specialise in processing and shipping product from other countries, mainly Burma and Laos, and increasingly Cambodia. Most of Cambodia's deposits are in the northwest around Palin. That's the headquarters of the breakaway Khmer Rouge faction. Yep, Bloom nodded. Palin's close to the Thai border and supposed to have some of the best sapphires and rubies in Asia. They say you can put your hand in the earth there and pull out a stone. The Khmer Rouge have had control of the town and the surrounding area for years. It used to be key entry point for Chinese military assistance to the guerrillas. When that dried up in the late 80s, the Khmer Rouge raised funds to continue their war by selling gems and timber to companies connected to the Thai military. Bloom grew animated as he spoke, his lowdown restoring some balance in his relationship with Quinlan. The trade used to be a pretty small scale, mainly dealers from Thailand digging by hand, but after the Vietnamese army left in the late 80s, the Thais built roads and bought in heavy equipment. We're talking serious money. What would Charles Avery be doing trying to set up a new gem mine near Pale Inn? Quinlan, said Quinlan, thinking aloud. What do you mean? It was something his sister mentioned when we met to discuss the job. And compete with the Ties? Not bloody likely, Bloom scowled. They've got the place sewn up. They pay the gorillas for concession rights, plus a percentage of their profits. Quinlan looked around as he processed the information. A woman on the other side of the bar fluttered her eyelids at him. He returned his attention to Bloom. Let me get this straight, Quinlan said. If Avery was actually involved in any way in gem mining business in northwest Cambodia, he would have been dealing with the Khmer Rouge. It would have been unavoidable, either directly or through middlemen. As for the notion he was starting a mine-up, the whole operation is a closed shop between the Khmer Rouge and Thais. If your boy does have a piece of something, he's either pretty tough or in way over his head. The punters were well lubricated now. The girls, sensing the time to strike, were dancing and flirting with more vigour. Next to them, a Western man and a Cambodian woman were negotiating a price. Couples were starting to leave. Quinlan's gaze lingered on a Cambodian woman who looked barely out of her teens, hanging off the liver-spotted arm of an elderly white man. It's late, said Quinlan, glancing at his watch. I'm going to the men's, then I'll leave you to have fun with your friends from the Lonely Hearts Club. The male toilets were at the end of a dank passageway at the rear of the bar. Quinlan turned after zipping his fly up to find Bloom standing at the entrance. "'What's the rush, mate?' said Bloom. "'Why don't we kick on somewhere? "'I know this great little karaoke club. "'We can sing a few songs. "'I can have a few more drinks. "'It'll be just like old times. "'Thanks, but no thanks. "'I've got a lot to do tomorrow. "'So have you.' "'What do you mean?' "'The old man's skin looked pasty under the fluorescent lighting "'and the alcohol gave his eyes a glassy appearance.' No one would have guessed he'd once been president of his town's local Rotary Club and a well-respected church-going business figure with a wife and three kids. It's been fun, but the business end of the evening beckons. I want you to ask around for anything that you can dig up about Avery, and I mean anything that will help me find him so I can get out of this country as quickly as possible. I'm staying at the Hotel International. Keep in touch and don't make me have to come looking for you. "'Sure, mate, sure,' Bloom slurred reassuringly. "'But you're going to have a devil of a time "'finding this Avery bloke in a place like Phnom Penh. "'It can't be that hard,' Quinlan said over his shoulder "'as he pushed past him to the entrance. "'After all, I found you.'" So thanks for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed uh, that section from my novel Ghost Money, which is out um, via Crime Wave Press, and you can get a copy on Amazon if you liked what you heard. Um, should you want to, you can also connect with me on Twitter at PulpCurry or via my website, which is pop www.pulpcurry.com. Thanks for listening and see you around.